Hello everyone and welcome to the second season of the History of Modern Greece, where we cover the subject of the fall of Constantinople to the modern day. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George. Hi, my name's George. And our music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is Season 2, Episode 69, Norman Conquest, Part 4, William vs. Harold. In our last episode, we continued the story of Robert Giscard. We talked about his younger brother, Roger, who traveled from Normandy to earn his own titles and lands so he could marry his true love, Judith, the Norman princess. The episode concluded with Roger and Robert conquering the city of Palermo from the Arabs, bringing it back into the Christian fold after 200 years of Arab occupation. At the end of the conquest of Palermo, Roger continued his focus on Sicily, where he and his wife would one day become king and queen. They were very tolerant and known for their benevolence. It is said that the kingdom of Sicily would become the richest kingdom in the medieval period. The Muslim population of Sicily was extensive, and therefore Roger's subjects were largely Muslim. But there was also a significant population of Byzantine Greek Orthodox. Roger was neither Muslim, nor was he Greek Orthodox. He was a Norman Catholic. It does seem as though Roger did not take his Catholicism seriously, and found it more of a political affiliation. However, with the conquest of Sicily came mass migration from Latins in Italy which flooded the island and eventually overtook the Muslim and Greek populations. But this is all in the future. What's important to take away from this is that the island was now in Norman hands. The Arab Caliphate was ejected, yet the Muslims and Greeks kept their mosques and churches. Roger would focus the rest of his life on Sicily with his true love and queen, Judith. As for Robert Giscard, his attention was focused in southern Italy, in his conquests of the Byzantine cities. He came to notice something spectacular. The Byzantine cities were imperial cities. Their churches and palaces were decorated with riches unlike anything he had ever seen before. The bright imperial purples had captured his imagination. If this is how rich the cities were on the outskirts of the empire, just imagine how rich they were in Constantinople. From this moment on, Robert Giscard became obsessed with taking on the empire. In fact, Robert Giscard wanted to become the emperor himself. There are reports that he even started dressing like the emperor, donning his own purple robes. But this episode is not going to be about Robert Giscard and his conquests of Greece. We will tell those stories from the perspective of the Greco-Roman emperors. We have one more story to talk about regarding the Norman conquests. This is, of course, the most famous story of all the Norman conquests. The conquest that took place in 1066 at the Battle of Hastings. We know this is a story about England, 
But we have two very important players here who either have crossed paths with Byzantium or will in the future. The first character is William the Bastard. He is the Duke of Normandy and great-great-great-grandson of Rollo the Walker. We left our first Norman origin story with William when his father left Normandy for a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and died on the way back, leaving William a mere child and bastard as the Duke of Normandy. Our other character for this episode is Harold Hardrada. We have mentioned Harold on several occasions in Season 2. He was the commander of the Varangian Guard and a Viking who traveled down the Dnieper River from Norway to serve in the Byzantine Empire. In this story, both Harold and William share similarities. Their ancestry, their upbringing, and their ambitions are all cut from the same stone. They are both descended from the Vikings, they are both baptized in blood and war, and they both have ambitions for conquest. However, they spent most of their lives far away from each other and probably never met in person. William spent his childhood in Normandy, while Harold spent his childhood in Norway. But Harold rode his way down the Dnieper and joined the Varangian Guard, spending most of his life in the luxurious royal palace, protecting the Roman Emperor and fighting the wars of the Emperor, while William spent his early years fighting for his life and was used as a pawn by Norman noblemen. Ultimately, these two men will rise in prominence and become dukes and kings of their own domain and will both set their eyes on the same prize, the Kingdom of England. Both Duke William and King Harold will have a claim to the island nation and both will attempt to take it by force. This is their story. We will start our story with William. In the year 1035, Duke Robert died on the way home from Jerusalem. Not only did this news devastate the young William, only seven years old, for he loved his father greatly, but it also meant young William's life was in danger. The Normans ruled by strength, and a young seven-year-old is not the ideal image of strength. To quote the book of Ecclesiastes, Woe to you, O land whose king is a youth, and whose princes feast in the morning. This is the same passage quoted by the chronicler at the time, and how true this was, as we have seen many great dynasties go through turmoil when an untimely death leaves a child in charge. A relative of William, Count Gilbert of Brion, was named as his guardian, sworn to protect the young Duke of Normandy. William was educated and taught to read and write in Latin, but he was also taught how to fight and the art of war. The fighting started almost immediately, but not against the Duke. There were many Normans who had their own disputes with each other, and in the past, the Duke of Normandy would settle these differences. But with the duke dead, and his child sitting in his place, these Norman nobles settled their disputes the old-fashioned way, by killing each other. Wars broke out between the Norman families in the region, and there was no authority to keep them in check. By 1040, the plots quickly turned to the duke himself. 
The most powerful position in the region was held by a young boy. And Count Gilbert of Brionne was quickly assassinated, and the young William was rushed to another castle, where he was watched over by Osborne the steward. There were many loyal to the dukedom, and they swore to protect the young William. But the rebels were determined to kill the young boy and take the position for themselves. One night, while young William, no more than twelve or thirteen, lay sleeping in his bed. Osborne the steward stayed inside to watch over the young Duke William while he slept. The Duke said goodnight to the steward, who promised he could go to sleep and he would be safe. But later in the evening, a band of Normans broke into the castle, kicked the door open, and tried to kill William. While the young boy lay under his covers, he watched Stuart Osborne fight off the attackers, only to have swords plunge through his body, killing him on his floor. Luckily, the outer guards came in and killed the assassin before he could take out the young Duke William. This event had to have affected the way young William matured into adulthood. There was no doubt that William learned the world around him was dangerous, and if he were to survive, he was going to have to become ruthless himself. The attacks continued, but there were those who were fiercely loyal to young William, including his mother, who maintained a presence in the Norman courts. She made sure everyone knew that the rightful ruler of the lands was William. Her brother Walter promised to look after his young nephew and even slept in his room to make sure he was safe from assassination. On numerous occasions, they had to flee their castle in the dead of night and row down the river to avoid attempts on his life. William's childhood was tumultuous and full of chaos and violence. But it also shaped his way of thinking. He was determined to enforce strict rules and regulations when he came of age. The violence had hardened William and made him stronger. He did not want to see Normandy slip into this state ever again. And William developed a strong vision for the future. Now for Harold Hardrada. Harold Hardrada was born in 1015 in a small city north of modern-day Oslo to a minor Norwegian king of an insignificant part of the region. He was a prince. Norway was not the country we know it as today. At the time, the realm was dominated by the Danes and the great King Canute. The Danish King Canute claimed all of Denmark, most of England, and most of Norway, as well as parts of Sweden. Harold's father was baptized as a Christian in the late 900s and was not known as a violent Viking conqueror like his ancestors. But he quickly noticed his son Harold had the inner spirit of the Vikings. His father encouraged his young son to pursue the life of war and conquest, as was the way of their people for thousands of years. Now here's a fun fact. If we noticed our children today displaying signs of violence and brutality, we would call them a bully, but back then it was considered valiant and kingly. While Harold lived at home in his small kingdom of Norway, the Danish king gathered an army and sailed them across the North Sea to subdue the Norwegian lands. 
This Danish army had soldiers from Denmark and England. Harold's half-brother was the king at the time, and he knew they were outnumbered. This massive pagan army of Vikings was coming for them. Harold's half-brother Olaf brought his army to the mouth of a river, where he knew the Viking armada was going to land, and they spent day and night preparing the battlefield. They went up river and dammed the water with peat and wood, creating a large dam that backed up the river. When the Viking armada arrived on the scene, a large detachment of Viking ships rowed up the river to land their armies. At this moment, the order was given, and the dam was broken, and thousands of gallons of water broke through and rushed down the river, smashing into the small Viking vessels, toppling them over, and sinking the armored Vikings to the bottom of the river. Now this minor victory did not win them the war, as the bulk of Canute's navy remained at sea. Canute ultimately won this war, and the Norwegians were forced to flee to Sweden. Here, Olaf was joined by his half-brother Harald Hardrada, only 15 years old, and together they marched north through Sweden to attack Norway from the north. When they finally made it into Norway, they found the peasants were heavily armed and fiercely loyal to Canute the Great. The battle began, and Harold's half-brother Olaf was wounded twice, knocking him to the ground. As he rested against a rock, bleeding from his cuts, a Danish warrior plunged a spear into his chainmail, and another stabbed him in the throat, killing Olaf on the battlefield. Harold managed to escape the battlefield, and fled with his men through the countryside, where he found a farm that took him in. Here he recovered from his wounds. His men were fed and they made their journey across the mountains from Norway through Sweden and finally crossed the Baltic Sea. Once they crossed the Baltic Sea, they sought refuge in the kingdom of the Kievan Rus, which we described in earlier episodes as a kingdom made up of Slavic peoples ruled by Viking warlords. In 1031, Harold sought refuge in the court of Yaroslav the Great. While he was there, he found a lovely woman who he fancied, and proposed to her family with marriage, but was declined. He found out, as many had found out before, that one cannot marry a noble woman without lands or wealth to offer as a dowry. This realization made Harold begin his campaign to obtain wealth and money. He knew he needed lots of money to attract men to his banner so that he could go on a conquest to take land and then and only then could he marry who he wanted. This brought his attention to the most wealthy kingdom at the end of the Dnieper River, the Roman Empire, and Constantinople itself. His ultimate goal was to marry the woman he loved and take her back to Norway, where they would rule together as king and queen. While serving under the Roman Emperor, Harold fought in campaigns as far away as Syria, and fought the Arabs on multiple occasions, going as far as the Euphrates River. According to the Viking sagas, Harold conquered as far as Palestine and negotiated a peace between the Fatimids and the Byzantines. It is also said that he visited the holy site of Jerusalem and negotiated to have safe travels for all pilgrims traveling to the Holy Sepulchre. He is even said to have been there during the reconstruction of the Holy Sepulchre after it was destroyed in a fire in 1009. 
Here's another fun fact. There are some who claim the Crusades were triggered when the Fatimids burned down the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. A church built on the cave where Jesus was said to have been risen from the dead. But as we will show you in this season, that is not why the Crusades happened. Although we are sure it was used as propaganda during the campaign. While serving with the Varangians, Harold traveled on a campaign to Sicily to retake the island from the Arabs. But as we know from the last few episodes, this campaign was not successful. And it was in fact the Normans who would take the island for themselves. While campaigning in Sicily, it is said that Harold and William Longsword fought together in a campaign in Sicily. And the fortress they were trying to take wasn't giving in. So they did something clever and tied wax and sulfur and twigs to pigeons. And before setting them loose, set them on fire. The pigeons flew back to their houses and burned half the fortress down. This victory is what made Harold rise to the top of the ranks in the Varangian Guard. If this sounds familiar, it is the exact same story as Olga in the Kievan Rus origin story. So it makes us question, not only the validity of the story, but also the story of Olga. Or perhaps both are true, and it was just a Varangian tactic. While campaigning in southern Italy, a Lombard revolt shattered any chance of the Byzantines taking back Sicily. And what resulted was a series of conflicts that saw Harold fighting for the Byzantines against the Lombards and Normans. Specifically, his old partner, William Longsword. We know from our previous episode that this was the beginning of the Norman conquests of Italy. But for Harold, it meant returning to Constantinople. In late 1041, Harold Hardrada found himself fighting in Bulgaria with Emperor Michael IV. This is the same campaign where the Emperor rode into battle with both legs gangrene and won a huge victory. Shortly afterward, the Emperor died in the royal palace and his nephew, Michael V, became Emperor. Immediately after coming to power, Michael V had Harold Hardrada arrested for stealing from the royal treasury. There is a great reason to believe Michael V arrested Harold because he was distrustful of his loyalties. As Michael's next order was to banish Zoe the Empress. And as we saw in a previous episode, this was grossly unpopular with the people and a mass revolt soon followed. After the rebellion put down Michael V, and Zoe and Theodora were returned to the throne, Harold was released from prison and given the brutal task of punishing Michael V, possibly carried out by Harold's own hands. Michael V was held down, strapped, and then horrifically castrated, and then to top it off, red-hot pokers were burned into both of Michael's eyes. After all of these adventures, Harold was only 27 years old. He desired one thing in life, to return to the kingdom of the Kievan Rus, marry his true love and sail north for Norway, where he would take his rightful place as king. He expressed his intention to leave, but was forbidden to do so by Zoe. Some sources say that she loved him and forbid him to go, and others say she needed him to continue serving her in the Varangian Guard. Either way, Harold snuck out of the palace one late evening and made his way down to the harbor. 
There he got onto a ship and sailed away. He made his way out of the Bosphorus, across the Black Sea, and sailed up the Dnieper River to the city of Kiev. There he met up with his true love, Elisive, and with her father's blessing, the two married in 1043. It is strange that marriage was allowed at this time, because although Harold was now an extremely wealthy man, he was not a king or landowner. It is possible that Harold shared many Byzantine secrets, such as how the city was defended. This is backed up by the fact that shortly after Harold married Elisif, King Yaroslav launched a campaign against Constantinople, where he was ultimately defeated. Harold and his wife Elisif sailed up the river and entered the Baltic Sea, where they arrived at last in Sweden. It is said that the ship was so full of gold that it nearly sunk along the way. The king of Sweden took kindly to Harold, as he was related to Princess Elisif, and together they forged an alliance. The alliance started with Sweden and a pretender to the throne of Denmark, and raids were carried out for several years against the coast of Denmark. But when the king of Norway reached out to Harold with a proposal, he quickly dumped his old friends. It seemed that the king of Norway was broke, and he offered to share the kingdom with Harold if he would share his gold with the king. This made Harold the co-king of Norway until the proper king died, and ultimately left the entire kingdom of Norway to Harald Hardrada. At this point, Harald had achieved all of his goals. He was the king of Norway. He was stinking rich, and he was married to his true love, Elisiv. Back to William. We last left William as a small child on the run, while Norman barons attempted to assassinate him and take the duchy for themselves. Duke William fled to Paris, where he sought refuge under King Henry. Well, William was no longer a small child on the run. He had grown into a powerful young man with a chip on his shoulder. He returned to Normandy with King Henry's army, to put down this rebellion and restore order to the duchy. At the Battle of Valas Dunes, William, along with Henry's cavalry, faced a much larger army of Norman rebels. But the king's army was far more disciplined, and after a series of cavalry charges, and at one point the king of France being knocked off his horse, the battle was won with a French victory. William was victorious, thanks to the help of King Henry, and his place as Duke was finally recognized. This mere battle did not mean that William had regained control of Normandy. Far from it. But it did give him a place to start. For the first time, his name wasn't the only claim to power. Now he had a victory. But he had to be ruthless to make sure every Norman in the duchy knew it. He went on a campaign against those who still opposed him, surrounding their castles and laying siege to their fortresses. King Henry assumed everything was under control, and he returned to Paris, while young William went riding around his land, putting down anyone who opposed him, most often with extreme violence. And after eight years... William finally had his duchy under strict control. 
Every Norman who supported him was by his side, and those who opposed him were already dead. William had become a strong and fierce leader, and this caught the attention of King Henry in Paris. King Henry must have been scared now that the Normans were united and stronger than ever. And so King Henry decided he better march his army into Normandy and put this down. It was a threat to the security of his kingdom, having a duchy and duke more powerful than the king and kingdom. King Henry's army marched into Normandy, where they faced off against the unified army of William. And in an astounding defeat, King Henry was chased out of Normandy. He tried again a few years later, but was, once again, defeated. King Henry never gave up, and constantly launched raids and attacks into Normandy all the way up until his death in 1060. With the new king of France, a seven-year-old boy, a regent was needed, and that regent was a family member of William. And what this meant was that the French king was no longer going to be a problem. So William took his massive army and pointed it away from Paris and directly to the west at the county of Brittany. William went on conquest, expanding his territory into other kingdoms, growing his lands to the west and south. But during these campaigns, his eyes wandered to the lands beyond the narrow sea. He was looking at England. England had once been a battleground for Vikings, and not too long before this story was completely ruled by Canute the Great a Danish king. But now there was a new king in charge, and his name was Edward. King Edward ruled over all of England, but he did not have an heir. And this meant that very soon, England was going to be contested. William wasn't the only one to recognize this. Everyone recognized this, including the English. Edward the Confessor, the current King of England, had a brother-in-law named Harold Godwinson. And it seemed to everyone in England that Harold Godwinson was the rightful heir to the throne. But he was only related through marriage. William, the Duke of Normandy, had close family ties to the English noble family. Those thirty years where Canute the Great ruled over England saw the English king and queen flee to Normandy for refuge. Now the reason they fled to Normandy is because Edward the Confessor's mother was Emma, and Emma was a Norman-born princess. So they had close ties to Normandy. There they met William personally, and even promised William to be the rightful heir of England. But this was all done before Edward returned to England and made up with the Godwinson family and reinstated Harold Godwinson as the rightful heir. On paper, it looks like both William and Harold Godwinson had the same amount of claim over England. On January 5th, 1066, King Edward of England died. On his deathbed, 
he named Harold Godwinson the rightful heir to the kingdom. And this is where the race began. King Harold Godwinson crowned himself king immediately and went straight to work, gathering the support of all the nobles in England. Across the channel, William was turning red with rage. He knew that if he was going to uphold his claim to the throne, it was going to be done with steel and blood. William went on his own campaign in Normandy, gathering up supporters, building the largest army he could. He even got the support of Bretons, who had long before fled England for France when the Anglo-Saxons first invaded. William's army was growing stronger, and this did not go unnoticed. Harold knew William planned to invade, and so he gathered his own massive army and camped them in the south of England, waiting for William to cross the channel. War was coming, and everyone knew it. King Harold Godwinson's army waited all summer in the south, but the Normans never came. And to make it worse, it was now harvesting season and he had to dismiss a significant amount of his voluntary soldiers to go harvest the fields. Otherwise, the kingdom would starve over the winter. This was a huge blow for King Harold Godwinson. But to make matters worse, word had spread to King Harold that another claimant to the English throne was coming from Norway. It seems that Harald Hardrada, king of Norway, also claimed the English throne for himself. Harald Hardrada believed that he had a rightful claim to the throne because he was descended from the same Vikings who conquered and ruled over the land during the reign of Canute the Great. He was the rightful heir of Edward the Confessor. He was the rightful heir of Canute the Great. The same summer, while Harald Godwinson and William were gathering their armies, Harold Hardrada was doing the same. Oh boy, could be a big gunfight at the OK Corral. Mm -hmm. In August of 1066, Harold Hardrada launched his navy from the coasts of Norway. He had over 300 ships and over 15,000 soldiers. At first, his campaign was successful, and he landed in Northumbria and took the city of York. Here he launched raids into southern England and won several small victories against the local English lords. King Harold Godwinson quickly learned of the invasion and decided to leave his post in the south and march his army up to Northumbria. Time was of the essence, as he knew William was mustering an army to invade from the south. The English army marched at remarkable speeds, barely stopping to sleep. They traveled over 185 miles in only four days. On September 25th, 1066, the Norse army caught wind of the approaching English, and they left their camp to meet a Yorkish representative at Stamford Bridge. They knew the English army was coming, and they thought this was going to be a quick hostage exchange and a negotiation so they could rally their troops and fight the English army. In their eyes, there was no possible way the English army could have made it this far north, so fast. So they were greatly unprepared for battle. When they saw that it wasn't the Yorkish, but instead the entire English army, it was too late. The battle was on, 
The Norse soldiers retreated across Stamford Bridge, where the bulk of their army formed up a shield wall, while a single Viking berserker armed with two battle axes guarded the bridge. This warrior was unbelievably tall, strong, and ferocious. He chopped and swung and killed every English soldier who tried to get past him. It is said that this one Viking berserker killed 40 English soldiers by himself before an Englishman floated under the bridge and stabbed up through the planks, injuring the Viking berserker. The English soldiers then cut down the Viking guard, stormed the bridge, and met face to face with the long shield wall of Harold Hadrada's men. The battle was intense as the fighting and slaying at the shield wall went back and forth. Each side is stabbing and slicing into the other's ranks. But the fact that the Norse soldiers weren't expecting to fight this morning meant they weren't wearing their heavy armor. And very quickly they started to fall. For every ten strikes the Vikings made against the Anglos, only a couple would make it through the armor. But for the English, every stab hit flesh. At this point in the battle, Harold Hadrada took an arrow and fell to the ground. It's important to note that while two shield walls faced off against each other, arrows were flying from both sides, raining down on them. Once the English broke through the shield wall, it was no longer a battle. It was a slaughter. The Norse were cut down. Bodies, arms, legs, and guts covered the battlefield. The Norse turned and ran, but were themselves were shot down with arrows or cut down with swords. The cavalry chased the strangers and skewered them with spears. Harold Hardrada died that day, along with 10,000 of his men. This ends the Age of Vikings. Harold Godwinson allowed the survivors to return home to Norway. Out of all the 300 ships that ferried the army across the North Sea, only 25 were needed to transport the survivors home. But there was no time for celebration. Harold ordered his troops to immediately mount their horses and begin the long ride back to southern England. This great English army was mustered to fight the Normans. And now they had lost a lot of soldiers to the harvest and the Battle of Stamford Bridge, and they were exhausted from riding days on end. Just three days after the Battle of Stamford Bridge, Duke William of Normandy landed in Pevensey Bay on the south coast of England. He landed completely unopposed, and once everyone was safely on shore, they set up camp in Hastings. Meanwhile, Harold Godwinson rode south, not as fast as the time he rode north, as he knew his men needed rest, but his goal was to get to Hastings as fast as he could to surprise William and defeat his army. By this time, his army was significantly smaller than it was when he first intended to face William. They found a tall hill to set up camp and waited for the right time to surprise attack the Normans. Unfortunately, the Normans already knew they were there. On October 14, 1066, the English woke up to an unusually warm morning. They were almost completely made up of infantry, without any cavalry and very few archers, if any. 
Meanwhile, the Normans marched upon the English camp with heavily armored infantry, a strong armored cavalry, and hundreds of archers with thousands of arrows. When the two armies met, the English soldiers sitting on top of the steep hill formed up their shield wall. The Normans fired their arrows, but the steepness of the hill sent the arrows either into the shield wall or over the heads of the soldiers. Once it proved the arrows were not doing anything, they ordered a cavalry charge up the hill. But the steepness of the hill allowed the English to repel the cavalry charges without any major losses. But then something strange happened. A rumor spread throughout the Norman army that Duke William of Normandy had been killed. They were not going to stay and fight if their leader was already dead. So a large part of the Norman flank panicked. They turned and ran away. King Harold saw this and ordered all of his men stay strong and hold their positions. But there were some undisciplined soldiers within Harold's ranks, and they saw these retreating Normans and pounced. It almost seems like the instincts of a wild animal. When they see a creature run away, they instinctively chase it down. This turned out to be a grave mistake. William saw his soldiers running away and rode his horse to cut them off. He took off his helmet and proved to his men that he was still alive and well. And he then ordered them all to turn around and fight the pursuing English. The English who had retreated from the safety of their shield wall were quickly hunted down and hacked to pieces. And this triggered a rest in fighting. Both sides were exhausted and they needed their rest. The shield wall closed in, and the Normans at the bottom of the hill regrouped. This lull in fighting gave William the time he needed to come up with a new strategy. He wanted to recreate the instance where portions of the Norman army retreated and the English pursued, so that he could cut them down outside of the shield wall. And when the fighting resumed, he executed this maneuver twice with some success. But before long, the day turned into night. And yet the battle still went on. It seemed like the fighting was going to continue all day and through the night. But then something happened. Something that completely devastated the morale of the English army. While the Norman arrows rained down on the English, one of them managed to strike Harold Godwinson in the eye. It went right through his brain and out the other side of his skull. Harold fell off his horse and was dead before he hit the ground. Panic spread throughout the English army and they quickly broke apart and fled. The Normans rushed the hill and killed the English soldiers as they ran. But darkness quickly fell upon the land and the Normans stopped to return to camp. Many English soldiers survived as they escaped through the darkness of night. The conquest didn't end there, but it sure as hell signaled the beginning of the end. It would be another two months of fighting before William finally took the city of London. And on Christmas Day, 1066, William was proclaimed the King of England. Even after becoming king, 
William had to crush the Anglo-Saxon nobles who stood up against him. But it was only a matter of time before William pacified them too. What was left was a reign of terror. The Normans ruled through fear and violence. England was a vast land that Normans could openly roam through, torturing and killing the peasants. It is said that when Norman knights rode in from the countrysides, peasants fled to the forest. There are reports of some Norman knights taking the peasants and stuffing them into tiny boxes, standing on the lids to make sure it closed all the way, then nailing them shut before burying them in the soil. From this point forward, the Anglo-Saxon nobles were replaced with Normans, and the official language was changed from Old English to Latin. Eventually, the two languages would evolve and merge and turn into Middle English, a blend between Germanic and Latin. When we finally get to the Crusades and we mention nobles from England, we will, of course, be referring to the Normans. Mm -hmm. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the History of Modern Greece. Stay safe and stay awesome. Mm -hmm.